Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Moin, moin. Yeah, morning, morning. In green, from Green Left Weekly Radio um, with Zane and me, Jacob. And we also have a special guest um, on the program today. We have Andy. Oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, Andy's uh, doing a bit of a skill share. Uh, yeah, helping keep us well trained in the art of presenting uh, radical community radio. Although for most listeners, you probably won't notice any difference. It's really for the people who are in the studio right now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, if you hear any little whispers in the studio, <laughs> that's what's going on. It's a bit of a skill share today. Yeah. Um, all right. First things first, we're coming at you from the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people of Kulin Nation, as is always the case. Uh, Always was, always will be Aboriginal land and respect to elders, past, present, and future. Right. So, um, in terms of um, the latest news, um, probably what the most significant thing that's happened in terms of politics in the past few days has been that Manus Island is officially going to be shut down um, because recently there was a there was a sort of it was apparently unconstitutional. Um, for in for the PNG government to run Manus, um, and so it will be closed down. Uh, as of like, but the main issue, I guess, um, is that despite this, is quite positive news that Manus Island is closed down. But Peter Dunton has been on record to say that um, all the refugees who were settled um, on Manus will not be um, settled in Australia, and essentially they'll be, you know. Um, deported possibly back to where they came from, which was which is usually war-torn countries where yeah, there's escaping they, persecution. I believe they call that refoulement. That's where you take people who have run away from danger and you turn them around and you send them straight back into that danger that was making them fear for their lives. Mm. That's a real massive no-no. And um, another, I guess... Most another more significant another significant thing that's happened in the refugee movement has been um, the Nauru files that's been kind of leaked by the Guardian, um, which has like reveals um, the extent of the abuse um, and torture that's really uh, that's uh, on these um, detention centres, um, especially like for example um, Zebedee Parks in the latest Green Left Weekly um, on the back cover. Um, wrote this article uh, about how Nauru Files exposes um, government cruelty. Um, Zebedee writes uh, that, you know, the examples of the story is like, you know, a boy is grabbed twi- around the throat, you know, has his head smashed against ground twice, and then a, f- a share is thrown onto him by the security guard. That's like the shilling kind of opening line that opens up that article. Um, it It... It, the article makes the claim that, you know, the article gives sort of the mounting evidence of, you know, how terrible, you know, the conditions of Nauru are and that 
as a result of these of the revealing of these um, um, files, it's clearly it's not going to be enough um, to you know make um, make the government shut them down. We need actual people power and pressure. Um, the Nauru files, he concludes, are causing a new wave of public outrage with more and more people speaking out against detention and looking for ways to get involved. They are creating an activist movement that makes detention so political costly that um, neither major party can consider abusing refugees to distract people from the attacks it is making on society. And uh, it makes a plug for the upcoming refugee rallies on August the 27th. All right, so we've got um, Dennis has just walked in. Hey. Good morning, comrades. Yeah, good morning, Dennis. Um, this Is this going to be your last show on air, Dennis? Or? It is officially going to be the last show which I co-produce with my comrades from Green Left Radio. Yes, indeed. Uh. And on 3CR in general uh. this year. Dennis is going to Spain. To do revolutionary things. Yes, to do revolutionary. The revolution, well, Spain, Europe, Europe, in general. However, however, I think I think listeners will certainly hear back from me uh, at various uh, points. As I will be, let's just say, an unofficial three-hour correspondent mm-hmm. based in Barcelona. Yeah, we can try and phone you in uh, every now and then. Yes, 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 yes. You may try. I'm not sure. I can't guarantee that you will succeed. <laughs> or we can Skype. We can have like a pre-recorded interview or something. That's true. That's true. Yes, yeah, yes. We we're just um, talking about the news that uh, Manus, the Manus Island concentration camp, is going to be closed down, and also the Nauru files that were leaked uh, earlier this week. Revealing brutality towards kids in the uh, mm. in the detention center. There. On top of everything else that has uh, been revealed over mm. over the over the years, there, mm. I imagine. And what about this? Uh, you know, the news the news that I heard that uh, that uh, Tony Abbott uh, wish actually now wishes that he's supported uh, you know uh, Gillard's Malaysia uh, Malaysia solution back in uh, back back in the day as well. Yeah, I haven't heard about that. I actually haven't. Yeah, I haven't heard. What I've actually heard is um, Peter Dunton's um, made a few comments along the lines of um, of that he actually thinks um, some of the claims in the Nauru files um, are false and that refugees <laughs> have made up things in the past. And so, um, yes, like you know, like, like you know, setting themselves on fire just to get to Australia. And um, I think he also said that. Uh, um, made a comment also recently, most recently, that he's been unfairly treated by the media and, you know, the idea is probably we forgot about, you know, you know, forget about all the refugees that have been tortured, you know, on offshore detention centres and, you know, forget about all the abuse that's happening, you know, or, or about, the, you know, the border protections. Let's just remember that Peter Dunton's feelings are being hurt in this process. Um, he's been comp- very oppressed by the amount of media attention and criticism he's receiving. Yeah, there's a story mm. in the uh, Sydney Morning Herald today It says, uh, yeah, there was this press conference yesterday and uh, um, who is it? Michael Brissenden, I think it is, was trying to question Dutton and he was being evasive and uh, eventually Dutton got really, Dutton was having nothing of it. There was a victim of mistreatment Everyone seems to be overlooking here, mm-hmm. and that's Peter Dutton. Um, so, 
Yeah, it's interesting that the sort of the mainstream, semi-leftish media, like the Sydney Morning Herald, ABC, The Guardian, they're getting increasingly um, losing patience with, um, yeah, Dutton's evasiveness and, and, yeah, his response to this, which is to try and shoot the messenger. Well, I think I'm going back to the Nauru files. Um, I think the most interesting thing is um, there's... There's actually been reports that a lot of things haven't been reported, um, specifically in relation to, um, I think, Wilson Security. There's a f- um, there's been some issues where I, I've, I've heard that um, Wilson Security um, have not given, you know, the, um, where evidence is not matching up to some of Wilson Security's claims and what what's actually happened is possible. Um, the cases of use are possibly worse than actually what's in mm. the Nauru files, but they haven't um, particularly been revealed at this point. Um, I guess another thing that's been happening um, in Australia in politics is um, the Carlton United Brewery strike is still um, going on. Um, some recent developments have, um, they've called for a mass rally on some in the Thursday of the, the September, which would be September. I need to get my calendar. The first <laughs> Thursday in September. The first Thursday the first of September, they've called for a mass rally on um, 11 a.m. Okay. at the Parliament House. Um, there's also been um, lots of letter um, leafleting and, um, at the stations um, from u- the unions, you know, to you know, tell people, you know, to boycott um, Carlton United Brewery products. Um, some pubs have actually started to participate in the, uh, in the boycott. And, um, they, and of course, they're still continuing with our Thursday pro- our weekly Thursday protest. Um, there was uh, one yesterday. Um, the struggle is still going on, and in fact, I think it's um, entering in its tenth week now. Or well, mm. yeah. I saw um, comrade uh, Steve Jolly from the Socialists, or formerly the, from from the Socialists. Okay. Well, he's a, he's uh, a he's socialist, 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 socialist councillor. Socialist councillor. Socialist councillor right? Steve Jolly. Um, he posted something. It was a letter. I, I, I'm not 100 percent sure who's who sent that letter of concern to him or to the council, but it was basically talking about concerns about the uh, health, um, the, the, the kind of sanitary standards at the brewery now that all the regular staff are off and there's all these scabs who don't really know what they're doing trying to keep the place ticking over. Yeah, um, yeah it sounds like they're... Standards have slipped just a little bit. Well, we, we had uh, Steve Diston on the show uh, a, f- a, few, a few weeks back, and uh, I've spoken, I've, talk, I've spoken with him on Stick Together and, and on the picket line. His, and um, like what they, what him, him and the other um, workers, uh, workers that have been locked, locked out have been saying, like you know, this uh, the the jobs that they, the, the jobs that they were doing back uh, back at the brewery, they like they knew exactly. <laughs> What they were doing, they knew, like you know, the the, the structure of all the um, of all the equipment of you know how to probably how to properly clean it, how to maintain it, do all of that. The uh, uh, the the, the scabs they brought in to do the work to do work for them. They, as Steve said, not very smart people. Um, and uh, you know, not not and not just that the production itself has fallen to one third of what it was. Uh, and, uh, back under the 
when uh, when the fifty five workers was uh, were still there. But the fact, like you know, it, it just it just really shows. Um, it's a good illustration of uh, uh, you know what's uh, what sort of what, what kind of what kind of quality the uh, uh, sort of the free for all free market neoliberal approach to production delivers makes, delivers uh, exactly versus versus uh, production that's actually you know the, that, that employs uh, or, you know w- uh, w- workers who are paid who 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 paid well, who have secure jobs, mm. uh, who, f- who feel like they're part of the workplace. It would be even better if they were the owners, you know, the workers were the owners, mm. but we'll need a revolution for that. Yeah, it's, kind of, it's kind of interesting um, because, um, you know, um, when it comes to, you know, the scabs that are working, clearly they're not trained, but, you know, what if the company invested in actual training for them? Oh, wait, but what, what would be the point of that? Because the whole reason they hired them was so they could not pay well, so they can pay lower wages, and you know, yes. having to them to retrain them. Well, basically, they might as well just rehire back the workers they sacked to begin with. <laughs> the yeah, because, yeah, it might be a, it might be a little bit difficult to uh, uh, how to say it, to uh, build up 906 years of exper- of combined experience across all, across all workers over over the brewery. Mm. That's, mm. That's what, because that's basically what you have with these, with the 55 guys that have been locked out. 906 years of combined experience. Mm. Yeah, right. In brewery work. Well, brewery work, maintenance, you know, fitting and everything else, yeah. When did they start? Because that crew, I thought that crew only started somewhat recently, or how long have they been working there? So some, some of them, it sounds like some of them are quite experienced. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, the, the plant's been around for decades, like the brewery. There's a Carlton United Brewery, brewery over there. And, yeah, some, like, I've been told like, some guys have been there for, 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 quite, a, for quite a while. Mm. Uh, either there or some guys have, have come in from other, you know, projects before. But, yeah, like, that, like uh, it's probably one, it's one of the most experienced, you know, uh, teams. Crews, yeah. Crews, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, uh, what, uh, what's more, what's more is that um, Steve Distant uh, uh, told me well, uh, on, on Stick Together, you basically have um, basically, basically in order in order to even get uh, a, a, like a proper secure job in an industry like that, and especially in that brewery, you basically have to do like a five-year apprenticeship, a five or six-year apprenticeship, and double with a, with like with like a double. Uh, hmm. Uh, basically, do, a, do like a double apprenticeship in fitting and in in, uh, uh, in uh, electrical um, in, uh, in electrical maintenance just to be qualified to really uh, to work to work over there. So yeah, right. So that really underscores the the lunacy of just throwing a crew of scabs in there. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Just tr- expecting them to m- magically pick it up <laughs> <laughs> straight away. Especially considering the grand final is less than a month away as well. Oh, looks like there could be a beer shortage at the grand final, oh. and the stuff that they do get could be yeah. a bit dodgy. Well, 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 actually, I'd say it's almost uh, good news for a lot of the you know uh, good old uh, homegrown corporate uh, beer beer cooperatives and uh, beer mm. and beer breweries, arti- what artisan beer breweries around Victoria. Artisanal. Artisanal, mm-hmm. sorry, beer breweries around Victoria. In fact, one of them, I believe, has actually been quite a quite big supporters of the CUB and the uh, uh, locked out, locked out workers. At the, at the uh, recent uh, was it um, 
a recent fun- fundraiser over, over a trade hall. They uh, they brought in like ten thousand dollars worth of beer yep. for the workers and plus another ten thousand dollars to support to support them financially. Mm. I well, can't remember the name. No, unfortunately. Of the beer. Of the 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 beer the beer the brewery yeah mm. the small brewery that supported them. Yep. Um, work that this uh, shows kind of like the power of you know workers solidarity. Exactly. <laughs> well, not not just that, but. Uh, Oh, what if, um, uh, I've j- just looking at some of the, the, the numbers for um, the money that the uh, the CB workers uh, have been getting from, well, basically from all around Australia. Like Chris uh, Chris Kane from uh, uh, Maritime Union of Australia WAs uh, when he came in, when he came in to uh, support the workers, he brought in like something like fifty thousand dollars from the MUAWA. Uh, I think I think the CFMU has given uh, the, C- the CFMU Victoria has given the CUB over like at least what between 40 and 50 grand. Uh, you know the ETU uh, branches from all over all over the country. They've yeah they've had like you know tens of thousands tens of thousands of dollars. Um, yeah, the list just goes on there. It's yeah, no, it's been it's been it's been incredible. Yeah. All right, so what else in terms of news before we go on to our first interview? Um, Dennis, do you have any interesting news to share? Well, actually, why don't I just read off the, you know, the front page of the Green Left. Uh, you know, farmers defeat a coal mine in Karuna in Liverpool Plains. Um, I'll just quickly uh, go over this. So the Liverpool Plains farmers are celebrating the New South Wales government's decision on August 11th to buy back... <laughs> BHP Burton's Karuna coal mine license for $220 million. So, this is going to be one last mine on, uh, in, New, in New South Wales. So, this, this, this comes after a struggle that began in t- 2008 when farmer Tim Duddy and the local community began a bl- blockade that put a spanner in BHP Burton's efforts to start drilling operations to his family's Rosma Park property. So. Alrighty. Alright. Um, on the line, we have um, Peter Love, who is um, the president of the, of the Labor History Society, and um, he, he's going to be speaking at a public meeting um, on, on about Frank Ansley. So we have him on the radio here, to, you know, to talk about who Frank Ansley uh, was, who was one of the, um, who's known as one of the leaders of the movement against conscription in World War One. Um, hello, Peter. Hello, how are you doing? Yeah, good. So I guess um, our first question is, what, what can you, why don't we start, for the listeners, start from the beginning and tell us, you know, who Peter Ansley was and then maybe... Frank. Could, Frank. Oh, it's Frank. <laughs> Sorry, I've actually been confusing his name no, no, with yours. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Frank Ansley and, um, and, you know, start from the beginning and then maybe talk about, you know, what his role is um, as one of the leaders of the, of, of, against conscription in World War One. Okay. Well, of course, uh, Ansley, among other things, that uh, those who know a little bit about him know that he was a remarkably colourful character in the Labour movement. Uh, he was born in, in England, actually, and uh, he, as, as a, after an itinerant uh, working-class family life, he uh, stowed away to Australia. He worked the uh, the coastal trade as a first of the cabin boy, and then a seaman. Worked on the wharves for a bit. Eventually settled in Melbourne and became part in the 1890s of the, the growing you know, uh, labour movement, both as a trade unionist and as a, a political activist, both in labour circles and other socialist uh, circles. He um, he was elected to the uh, seat of Eastburg Boroughs actually in 1902. That's a state seat. Uh, 
Um, and he moved then to the seat of Brunswick for the next election, and then in 1910 joined the federal parliament for the seat of Burke. He remained there until 1934. In the course of all those years, he became a prominent left critic of uh, the, the capitalist system, most particularly the uh, the financial services sector, banking, finance, and so on, in the capitalist system. And he developed in the course of all that a, a, a quite well-known theory of what he called the money power about the dominant role that finance capital played in the system. But apart from that, he was a particularly vociferous opponent to the Labor government's policy from the beginning of the First World War onwards until it, it, it split in 1916. Um, he, of the way it conducted the war, its attitude to all things, both uh, military and civilian policies at home. And he became quite a leading figure that the people of Brunswick are, uh, are rightfully uh, joining along with others like John Curtin and Frank Hyatt and others who came from Brunswick and were leading figures in opposing the 1916 and 1917 campaigns to introduce conscription in Australia. Um, so um, so what, um, can you tell us more about sort of his campaign um, against conscription, like in terms of like, you know, how he built the movement and... Well, he was he was part of the movement. Uh, you know, he he was in many ways a front man because he was already a, a quite prominent publicist, orator, and politician. Uh, he um, he was very quick off the mark when war was declared. Actually, he um, right at the beginning, taking some of the research from left wing researchers in. Europe and Britain before the war and following the Second International's uh, positions, he uh, drew attention to the way in which um, banks, armament manufacturers, uh, you know, leading social figures and, and political institutions had immersed themselves into a kind of interlocked series of trusts and so on. So it was they who had a dominant role in deciding what would be national policy and what would be uh, things worth fighting for. And, of course, he, he alleged, as, along with others, that this is the sort of thing that dragged ordinary working people into war, to, uh, into the slaughter, to slaughter each other when they had no, uh, no real cause to fight. Mm. He, uh, at the very beginning, there was um, all sorts of things he jacked up about. The first one was uh, the, the government was going to vote uh, money for the... Uh, relief for Belgium would have been invaded, you know, neutral Belgium, but of course he pointed out that how would they ever know the money would go to the people who needed it because the Belgian government was then treating its own people very badly and its, its king had been a ruthless exploiter in Africa of, um, through the colonial system. Uh, when the War Precautions Act was uh, introduced, that was the, the act which uh, imposed very severe restrictions on what people might say, do, write, and, and how they might behave during the war years. He opposed that and its, and its restrictive practices bitterly. And uh, he fought against the rising cost of living uh, because Labor had promised earlier on that they'd have a referendum about building control prices. But, of course, what happened when the war started, um, wages were 
compulsorily pegged using the mechanisms available through the federal government but also through the arbitration system. Uh, but prices just went up because of shortages and so people were squeezed very badly. And that was one of the issues that, that women activists were particularly effective in during the course of the war in drawing attention to that as well as the, uh, the horrors of people who lost members of their family uh, through the uh, hostilities. So he, he fought alongside a lot of those uh, um, battling women on that issue and uh, you know, we sort of stood behind them when they led the way on such matters. Um, he fought over the um, business about the war and how it was to be financed and how he alleged that uh, so much of the money that they borrowed to fight the war would end up having to be repaid uh, in years to come by those Whose, uh, whose families had lost ones, who'd given members of their family to the war, and then they would be expected also to contribute to pay war loans where Australia had gone to fight for Britain, and Britain still required Australia to pay for it. Um, and that um, that was something where he touched on some really quite tender nerves with people. <laughs> uh, he, um, he also was part of the trade unions campaign in, in May... 1916, when they started to fear that Billy Hughes, the man who'd become Prime Minister in 1915 when Andy Fisher had retired as Prime Minister, he was one elected in 1914, and when Hughes took over in 1915, he became a very, very uh, belligerent pro-war Prime Minister, and that alienated a lot of people on the left, and Anstey was one of the small minority to start with who opposed that, but gradually as the war ground on, you know, he was joined by, by many others, and uh, eventually the, uh, the government uh, was very, very divided over a whole lot of issues of, such as cost of living, War Precautions Act, uh, the, uh, uh, the sort of fate of the war itself and how well it was effectively being conducted. And uh, so the the tensions grew very, very taut, and uh, they had an all-Australian trade union anti-conscription congress at Trades Hall in May 1916, where representatives of many of the unions, not all, but many of the unions around Australia came together and uh, declared resolutely against conscription and... Uh, so, and, and Anstey was one of the leading people who wrote a manifesto that was issued uh, and then subsequently cons uh, um, sort of raided, the trades hall was raided as, long, as well as the Labour Call newspaper that printed it. Uh, and they were uh, confiscated by the military police a little, not long after that it was issued. Uh, and so the, he found himself, along with his comrades in the anti-conscription movement, you know, had direct and bitter loggerheads with the Prime Minister of the day. So, and all this is happening within a Labour government. And so that's what made it particularly um, uh, sort of fraught in many ways. And, uh, so then when Hughes led 24 of his colleagues out of the, uh, the caucus room in, uh, on 14th of November 1916, Labor split and uh, he set up a, a different government eventually with the support of the, the Liberal opposition 
uh, the, and uh, then the Labor, the mainstream Labor with Anstey's mob and those who were equivocating uh, but were opposed to the war, they were a, a much diminished party who went across to the opposition benches then. And from there they had to fight through uh, a number of issues. But before the split, they'd fought the campaign, the, um, the conscription campaign, tooth and nail, up and down the countryside. <laughs> and, and very vigorously, it, w- it was interesting in, in Brunswick because there were a number of loyalist people there too who supported the war. Uh, and it became quite a lively sight of the kind of differences that spread right across the country. Uh, but uh, Anthony's and his colleagues eventually prevailed by a narrow margin in the first vote, whereby uh, the, um, it was just a few thousand, but the, uh, the no campaign won by. It happened again in 1917, towards the end of 1917, there was a use with his usual trickiness, <laughs> pulled on another referendum by other means, and uh, he lost again by a larger margin. But by then, things were... You know, getting pretty well exhausted and the war had been dragging on uh, and there was a lot of bitterness around because of the, the general war weariness and the damage to the sort of civilian society that so much of those wartime uh, stresses had created. So in many ways, what happened in all of this, in far as Anstey was concerned, was he started as a, one of the relatively few lone opponents to the war within the Labor Party the early, at the beginning, but gradually, as times got tough and the uh, government led by Hughes became more belligerent in his pursuit of the war and Labor split, gradually Anstey himself turned even further to the left disowning the Labor Party because he said it was weak and divided. He became less um, uh, enamoured of his union uh, comrades. He was president of the uh, Tramways Union at the time. Um, And eventually he put all of his hopes, the future, into his view of what was the the people. Essentially a working class, not conceived of in classic Marxian terms, but a kind of populist idea of what the working class was. But when, in 19, October 1917, news began to filter through that there'd been uh, a socialist a revolution in Russia, that socialism was no longer a cause, it was looks like it was going to become a nation-state, uh, he got terribly interested in that, saw that this was the future of the world and this, the, the uprising of the masses around the world signified a transformative change and that this would be all that, um, that was required to sweep away the centuries of misery, oppression and bloodshed that had been brought by the wars of competitive capitalist empires. Mm. I just, um, I guess we only have like a few minutes left, but I just sort of have a, this is more of a, int- a question I sort of have because I, I know that, um, Frank Ansley is, um, has his namesake on one of the stations in Brunswick, um, the Ansley station, right. which is what I get off every time I go to work on Monday morning. <laughs> yeah. And, um, and 
Um, I kind of want to um, ask, you know, how is sort of Ansley kind of viewed in Australia today in um, sort of like, you know, how he's commemorated and was there like a movement to actually, you know, to get him commemorated um, in, in, like, no, say... No, not really. Uh, I was the only one who actually wrote a fair, a fair full-length yeah, biography of him, most, mostly because <laughs> it was very difficult to find the material on him. Uh, but... Um, no, no, he's he, he is regarded, I think, by those who you know, uh, look at Australian history closely, you know, as, as a particularly colourful and interesting figure in our political history on the Labor side, as as representative of a particular radical uh, stream of political thinking in Australian Labor. Uh, you know, he's he is in no way, you know. As, as well known as, as some of his you know, young students, his protégés like John Curtin and so on, because Curtin learned, had uh, speaking lessons in Anstey's house in Howard Street, Brunswick, mm. um, and as did Frank Hyatt and other young, um, young up-and-coming Labor blokes. Uh, he, no, he's, he's not really as widely recognised, but what I think you might reasonably do as you walk into your, into the station on your way to work is, you know, sort of, you know, tap the gate or some such thing and say, yo, morning Frank, comrade Frank, and sort of hop on the train and off you go. Alright, well, um, thanks, um, very much, um, for that informative interview. It was, um, really interesting history and, um, and I would hope that, um, anyone, um, listeners, if they want to find out more about Frank Ansley, uh, not, yeah, Frank Ansley, Peter Love, who's on, um, who we're interviewing now, will be speaking, um, at, um, next Monday at a public meeting, who was Ansley, and it'll be at 6.30pm at the St. Abros Community Centre, which is at 287 Sydney Road in Brunswick. Right, just near the town hall. Yep, just right near the town hall. Mm. Right. Oh. Yep. Okie dokie. Well, thank you oh, very much you. for being on our program. It's a pleasure. Yeah, thanks. Go well. Yeah, cheers. Cheers. We're already... Uh, yep, so you're listening to Green, 3CR. And Green Left Weekly Radio. It's Green Left Radio. It's Friday morning. Yeah, I kind of, um, so in terms of like, I want to go maybe to, um, international kind of news, especially, mm-hmm. um, Israel and Palestine, which is probably one of those issues that I'm very passionate about. Um, yes. there's two actually articles in the latest Green Left Weekly, and there'll be actually one which I'll also, another news story that I'll talk about that will be in next week's. Um, that specifically, um, about the, the Canadian Greens have, um, yes. passed a motion. Um, it's, Technically, they've made history in this sense because I think this is the first Greens party that has made a made a, a resolution to support the boycott, divestment, and sanctions campaign, which is targeting uh, the economic um, activities of Israel in the Palestine territories which, which they occupy. Um, it's um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be kind of like interesting in you know the context of Canadian politics because they've already um, gonna, it's going to spark probably a reaction from the more conservative press. Mm. And as far as I, my understanding, um, the current um, pr- um, the current prime minister um, in Canada who, um, of the Liberal Party, Justin Trudeau, Justin Trudeau is um, has passive support of Israel, or I'm not clear, mm. or is it more? Or is he more opposed to BDS? Is that more the thing? I think that, uh, well, well, I think what we have to remember is that uh, up until last year, Canada was probably w- was one of the biggest supporters of Israel. It was one of the biggest uh, 
I suppose in terms of political support, financial and, uh, and, and, and diplomatic, probably second to, second to the United States. You know, the former conservative prime minister, Stephen Harper, like he was, uh, he was, uh, well, uh, Benjamin Netanyahu was one of his, one of his, one of his best mates and Canada under, under him always, uh, you know, stood almost completely, completely in support of Israel. Uh, throughout the years, but with, with uh, Justin Trudeau and the Liberals, uh, they said like he like he personally has stated that he opposes BDS. Although although he's also said that he you know he's opposed to two state solution and you know the end of the conflict and all all, all that sort of stuff. The uh, and now from one end from one end the Canadian government now is not you know as brutal against. It's not as brutal against uh, BDS and uh, the Palestinian uh, solidarity as it was under Harper, but I, th- I think I think the problem is that we are still the Canadian establishment, uh, the political establishment still still would be, you know, after years, after more more than, more than a decade of conservative rule and before that. But th- I think this is a good, th- th- this is def- this is definitely a really good sign. Yep. For what, what the potential could be happening. And um, in the next article, um, which is titled "Israel Cracks Down on BDS Actu- Activists," um, Israel is, um, according to this article, is intensifying its efforts to crack down on activists working for freedom, justice, and equality for Palestinians. With um, um, this happened in August seventh, um, but basically, um, an Interior Minister of Israel and Public Security Minister Gila. Gilad Erdan um, formed a new intermercial task force that will, as the Times of Israel report, target supporters of the boycott, divestment and sanctions movement. Um, what this um, what this means is practices that they've um, they've accused, like you know, um, and um, they've threatened to sort of deport sort of people who could be potentially affiliated with mm-hmm. um, um, BDS campaigns, and under the pretense of them being anti-Israel. Uh, and of course, you know, and um, so deport foreign activists who come to Israel as, yeah, as part of that. Yeah, as part or, of that, or especially or even Pal- or even in Palestine. Hmm. Um, and of course, this is probably, I guess, one of the sort of um, responses of Israel is that really the the main reason they're so concerned is actually BDS has actually been shown to be quite effective. Oh, absolutely. Yes. Um, you know, for analysts, for example, in this article, suggests is. Um, you know, Israel's fight back against accountability, especially BDS, is all the more urgent amidst um, worse than expected eco- economic um, performance. It is ex- um, faced a plunge in exports in the first quarter of the year. And, of course, you know, analysts, you know, econo- economists, you know, see long-term problems for Israel's export industries. If, you know, um, and then they say that the drop in ex- exports is occurring for a number of reasons, but BDS and labelling of settlement goods are undoubtedly factors. Um, so, you know, that is... Really, what what's happening in terms of um, how Israel is responding? The state of Israel is responding to the BDS. And now another interesting story um, that's popped up. Many um, some um, people have may have heard um, that there was a football game recently between um, the Celtic um, Football Club yes. and um, Israel. Um, what mm. happened was um, <laughs> what happened um, what happened was basically um, th- um, though the police. Um, or threatening um, people, um, Celtic FC supporters. Um, for listeners' information, Celtic FC are a team in the Scottish Football League that have a very, that have a very sort of radical kind of history. Their supporters are some of the most radical kind of political people. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, there was um, what happened was there was thousands of um, Celtic FC supporters um, were downing sort of um, 
Palestinian flags and, you know, coin on... Well, I think the context, too, is that UEFA, yep. the Football Federation, threatened Celtic and said, you're not allowed to bring Palestinian flags yep. to the game, and if you do, we're going <laughs> to kick you out. Yeah. And in response, thousands of Celtic fans showed but up with Palestinian flags. Not just bring in, but wave them right in, right in the middle of the yeah. game. There's, a, there's, there's a, just a massive sea of Palestinian flags. Exactly. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. And it's actually kind of amazing because um, uh, it, it kind of really shows that, you know, sports and politics do actually mix. And uh, absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. um, what, what I actually, just going to anecdotally, um, from last year when we went to, I went to the Palestine versus soccer, um, Palestine versus Jordan game in the Asian Cup. Yes. Um, we were actually, um, activists were actually kind of, you know, you know, threatened, um, to be kicked out of the game if they even wore any t shirt that was political. Mm, ridiculous um, idea. Um, so, uh, yeah, yeah the, the, some comrades, actually, some comrades wore BDS t shirts. Like they, uh, you know, it was, uh, you were, uh, you were allowed to wear Palestinian t shirts. You yep. were allowed to wear, cause, you know, Palest, you know, that was a, <laughs> the Palestinian flag, you know, that was a bit recognized by the Asian Cup. But the comrades who wore the shirt, t shirts with, which clearly stated BDS, yeah, uh, were kicked out. They were, they were basically forced to either to cover up or get or got kicked out. <laughs> yes, and it, um, but I think in most um, in mo- in sports actually, you generally uh, aren't allowed to like you know bring political banners of any kind. Like I think mm-hmm. there was uh, been particular controversies around. Um, um, groups like say bringing a free the refugees banner in like oh, a yes. sports game. I think yes. I remember there was a tennis game where that happened and um, the activists got into a lot of trouble for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess yeah, in the in that context of that football game, it was a very political experience. In fact, the Palestine supporters laying were like going, you know, free Palestine, you know, boycott Israel, chanting all those um, great chants and. Um, and it, and it's amazing to see that a similar thing, a similar sort of sense of struggle is happening in um, elsewhere around the world. I think uh, I think also staying on the question of Israel, Israel and Palestine, there's all, there's been a bit of uh, some good news coming from within the Palestinian territories as well recently. Uh, I think Palestine, Palestinian Parliament or the Palestinian Authority will be holding their municipal elections uh, a bit later later this year. And just the other day, there was um, the uh, the five main left-wing Palestinian parties have announced uh, a formation of a new coalition, a left-wing coalition, as an alternative to Hamas and Fatah. Mm. I think they call themselves the Democratic Alliance. Ah, yes. So that's I heard about this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that will be that's that's been the main the main the main party which has been. Um, which has organized the, uh, which is basically organizing the grouping is uh, the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine, which has traditionally been sort of the Marxist um, arm of the, uh, of the Palestinian liberation movement. And there's also some of the, uh, there's also the Palestinian People's Party and Democratic Front for Liberation of Palestine and a couple of other, couple of other Palestinian parties I can't quite remember. But yeah, this, uh, this will actually be the first time in well, I'd say, I'd say de- definitely more, more than de- more dec- more in more than a decade, when there was like a real pro- a proper left-wing uh, coalition, electoral co- coalition st- standing up, uh, sort of in 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 opposition to uh, you know Ham- to, to the Hamas, uh, which is a, the Islamist um, party in in Palestine, which mainly controls Gaza, and Fatah, which has control, which has had control of the of the West Bank. 
now for 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 decades with Mahmoud, that Mahmoud Abbas is the president mm. there now. So yeah, it'd be interesting. I wonder to what extent <coughs> the um, I guess Syriza who like. I guess failed in their quest to single-handedly like smash European capitalism, um, and ended up copying a bit of a route. But that that Syriza coalition of the radical left mm, framework or problem or, or, or um, what would you say project? Um, then there's Podemos mm-hmm. and the the left coalition in Spain. Yes. Similar thing in Portugal. Yeah. The HDP yeah. in Turkey. Yes. There's Sinn Fein, I would say, in Ireland as well, to an extent. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, of course, the Kurds coming together with this kind of broad secular project. Yes. So I wonder. I I, I would instinctively suspect that th- those different developments across the region may have influenced this development in Palestinian politics. I think so. Uh, yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that uh, there's been there's definitely been a tendency of you know of I'd say electoral convergence of the different uh, of of the left across the um, across across the regions. Uh, there, I think, and uh, and and, al- and also, I think we, all, we might also uh, have a look at uh, at also also the last uh, elections within Israel as well, because uh, within Israel uh, as well, the um, the old uh, the left sort of coalition, what you could uh, we could say, or as you, as you might call it, so it's between the old Israeli Communist Party and um, uh, some of the sort of the pro peace parties and. Uh, uh, well, the we call the Arab list actually actually came together under one single electoral list and then became the third largest force in the in the set, which is the Israeli uh, parliament. Sort of trying to present themselves as a as a sort of a left alternative to uh, to Netanyahu and to the Herzog to, to the uh, <coughs> to the what they call what they call the this, uh, um, you know, sort of, we call the, the uh, more or less, more more or less the uh, the opposition to uh, to the Likud. Mm. So yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely, definitely, there's been a there's been a sort of electoral convergence across the board, across Europe and the Middle East. Word. Alrighty. Uh, so you were listening to Green Life Radio on 3CR. It's uh, Friday morning, about 10 minutes to 8. And in the studio this morning, we have got Jill Hickson, who is part of putting together the film The Women Who Were Never There, uh, which is about women demanding jobs at the BHP Steelworks in Illawarra through the 19... uh, When did that campaign start? In the 70s, yeah? And then throughout the 80s and... So that's right, Zane. So um, with the rise of the women's liberation movement, um, women got confidence, I suppose, to to, to um, go and tackle some of these big companies for jobs. But the real problem was was that there were no jobs for women and women were in desperate situations where they needed to earn a living, particularly if they were single, but even if they were um, in a relationship. You, you, it was very, it's very hard to live on the wage of one person. So... It did start in the 70s, um, and in particular the film that we've made, The Women Who Were Never There, is set in 1973, because it was a particular period or a particular uh, year where women took a lot of very exciting actions. Hmm. Now, in reality, we're looking to make a film around the 1980 to 1994 Jobs for Women campaign, which was 
so significant that it changed industrial law, legal law, and the women won. Seven, over 700 women won jobs and won compensation uh, once they were retrenched and, and so on by the biggest company in Australia, BHP. So um, it was a very significant period. Um, we decided to make the film on the 1973, partly because it's a story never been told, lost in history, um, and because we're trying to raise the funds to make the 1980 to 1994 feature film. Okay. So this, The Women Who Are Never There, th- this will remain a short film, because I remember seeing you at the Socialism of the 21st Century Conference, and there was like a six-minute trailer, but you were talking about... That was actually the first seven minutes of the film, six minutes of the film. So the yeah. film's 25 minutes or 24 minutes. Yeah. Um, it originally making a short film, it was supposed to be seven to ten, but we just couldn't fit the story into that time limit, so it spanned it out to, to 24 minutes. Uh, it actually carries three stories in it, it's this, and it's kind of a prelude to the 1980s. Yeah, it sort of cool. sets up. And you've got to remember, in 1973, Whitlam had just been... Gough Whitlam, from the Labor Party, had just ended conservative rule of, you know, 25 years or something, and ushered in, and he, he was elected in December 72. Um, so things hadn't started to change, but they were about to change. Ran, Neville Ran, in uh, the Premier of the Labor uh, in the Labor Party, was Premier in 1977. He did try, um, with the backing of, of women, to get anti-discrimination legislation through the Parliament, but because he was in opposition, he didn't have the numbers, and it wasn't passed till 1977 when he was in government. So the difference between the women's struggle in the 1973 was, even though they actually won at a certain point through their actions, the women activists did not get jobs. They employed a couple of hundred women, but not the women activists. By getting the anti-discrimination legislation passed in 1977 in New South Wales, in the 1980 campaign, they were able to use that legislation to take on BHP. And the women activists, all the women who were carrying out the tent embassy and all sorts of actions, also got jobs. Yeah, nice. Yeah, so it was was quite good. Um, It was... it's quite a good story because it's about working-class women taking on the biggest company in Australia and winning. Mm. Um, but it's also indicative of the fact that women's history is lost. The legal laws that were changed around the anti-discrimination legislation, plus that was tested, was the first class action that won in Australia, isn't taught in the legal studies in universities. They do make mention of it because it was significant, um, the other thing, it changed industrial laws for all workers because, I don't know if you know, in those days they had a lifting. Um, one of the things they had, well, one of the reasons they said that women couldn't work in BHP was because they couldn't lift more than 16 kilos. Um, at the time when it was investigated as to, well, what jobs do we require a 16 kilo lifting, they couldn't tell you. They, it was really, you know, it became quite clear that it was just a, a lie, you know, mm. it was just made up to, to prevent the women from getting jobs. But this was also at a time when there were just jobs. I mean, BHP couldn't get enough workers from, BA, from Port Kembla, um, eventually had to go to the government um, in 1973 and ask to get 800 migrants to, to enter Australia because there were no people in Wollongong to take those jobs and of course there were there was half the human race there were the women mm. um, but they weren't um, they weren't given the jobs and uh, speaking of migrants uh, seeing that that first uh, six minutes of the film when I was in Sydney a couple of months back 
Um, my I come from a partly migrant family myself. My um, grandparents on my mum's side were from the Netherlands, and that really struck me about the the introduction to the film is that there was a lot of migrant women living in Wollongong and that they were a very important part of this campaign. Um, So in 1980, they were crucial. There was over 700 women, majority. 95% were migrant women, Hmm. um, and they got jobs. In the 1973 campaign, because the women activists knew that they would not get jobs, they actually disencouraged migrant women from getting involved on the front lines of the campaign. So they didn't go and chain themselves to the gates of BHP. They didn't sneak in and do a work-in because they wouldn't get jobs. And these women were quite desperate for jobs. When when they won, BHP did employ a couple of hundred women and they were all migrant women. So they did get the jobs, but none of the activist women who were um, Australian, whatever, um, didn't get the jobs. Whereas it was totally different in the 1980 campaign. And in fact... um, I think it went something like there was an ad in the uh, there was a newspaper article in the local paper which said that women were taking on BHP to get jobs and a lot of the migrant women read it as there were jobs at BHP. Now these women had set up a tent embassy outside BHP, the most busiest area where the workers were coming in the trains, the buses, and and so on, and the cars were and trucks were coming past, which was just opposite the employment office. So the women actually, a lot of the migrant women rushed down to the employment office to reapply because they'd already applied many times. And then they walked away going, well, there are no jobs for women because they literally would tell you there are no jobs for women. And then they noticed across the road, and in fact the women had leaflets and were encouraging the women to cross the road and join the campaign. And some of the migrant women went over, realised what was going on, and then went back to their communities and just rallied women And everyone knows how strong women can be when they're rallied. Well, you know, 700 women in the end um, were in a class action against BHP. Mm. Quite historical. Impressive stuff. Um, Sorry, I'm hogging all the questions here. Oh, I I think same keep on. Another thing that I noticed, and I I, I was actually selling my labour yesterday and was unable to make the film, which I'm bummed about because I was really excited to see that. You can buy. I'm just interrupting. You can buy the film on DVD if you want. Oh, excellent. Okay, how do I do that? Uh, We have them. There's the resistance centre right now. The resistance centre on Swanson Street. Yeah. Or is there a website? Yes, there's a website, uh, Jobs for Women Film Project. Yeah. um, Dot com, Um, and they'll be yeah available there as well. Excellent. Uh, Um, Yeah, one of the things that struck me when I saw that that first six minutes was the scene where the young women go down and lock themselves onto the front gates of BHP and it 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 struck me as being just like some anti-coal protests that I've been to it, it was like it was like a yeah it was bizarre it was like a uh, a, a replica of coal protests that I've been to. And what have you found has been the response of, of young women to this project? Because, I don't know, I think I've seen Rocking the Foundations, it's all black and white, it seems a bit like... It's it's riveting viewing once you get into it, but this project is all full-colour film recreations of past events, and it, it, it really... It, it takes that 40... 
plus year gap between now and when this happened and it just dissolves and it feels like it happened yesterday which I found really inspiring I'm wondering yeah what's what's it been like the response that you've got from young women in particular that's a good question Zane um we've um only um we've had the launch in Wollongong and Sydney and now Melbourne um Across the board, particularly women, love it because it's a, it's a women's story and uh, it's strong women and it's about women struggling and fighting and actually winning. Um, the situation for women today is not much different. And there are a lot of differences, but there's also not a lot of difference. So, you know, I always quote the, the quote that in 1922, sex segregation of women um, into women's jobs was something like 84%. So 84% of women workers worked in women-dominated industries, so in cooking, secretarial, nursing, teaching, and so on. Today, it's 82%. It's not a significant difference. Hmm. You look at the... Part, so in 1973, there was a thing called the family wage. Now, probably you never heard of the family wage rule you know, young, Um, it was the wage that was set legislation for what women could earn in relation to men. Women earned 75% of what men's wages were. Today, it's 83%. So, Hmm. okay, we've improved. We haven't, but now today, for example, the very big difference is we don't talk about the family wage. No one's even heard of the family wage anymore. We talk about equal pay. Hmm. We don't have equal pay and we're still fighting for equal pay, but that's the, the demand. And, of course, women have won lots of demands, but you, you, you all know the statistics for women and violence. Mm. Two women a week are getting killed by their partners. That's those getting killed. The number of those getting bashed and, you know, mm. tortured and hurt um, in their relationships is, is um, so high. And certainly I think on, for today's young women, that's one of the key issues. Violence against women mm. is how to solve that. Um, but, of course, for anyone uh, like yourself having to sell your labour, the, the bottom line is you need a job. You mm. need a job, you can have money, you have independence, you're not dependent on anyone else and you can have your own life. So we think it is a film that will inspire women, um, mm. young women. We're hoping that it will also re-engage them with unions because that's the other thing that's gone. Is it like in those days, I mean, in Port Kemblin, you know, you're from Newcastle, Unions were your, you know, your community. Mm. You socialised, um, they fought for your rights and all those sorts of things. Today, with all the attacks on the unions, people don't see unions like that anymore. Um, but, you know, of course, if you don't have collective action, if you don't have a union, then you're not going to win against the bosses. You have this individual fight against, a, you know, a huge... Um, uh, company or whatever, you're not going to win. But if you have take collective action, you've got a union behind you, um, you can win. Mm. You don't always win, but you can win. And that's the other message of the film, is that you need collective action and you need the union behind you. Mm. Um, well, we should get to the activist news. Uh, one last thing. You've mentioned when you came in that uh, the... Tell us a bit about the feature film and about the, the the idea of building a narrative into this so that it's not just a strictly uh, dry collection of political events, but it's an engaging human story. Well, that's why um, what's so good about feature films is that you've got the time to develop the characters, to give their stories, to show their flaws um, and to have the struggles. Um, the sh- problem with the short film was character development 
it, it was a bit hard because it was a, such a short film. But certainly in the feature film, that's what we'd like to do. And you look at any feature film that you see, it you know sucks you in and you get in with the characters. I would say what Hollywood does is they get the worst killers, the mercenaries and all sorts of people like that, humanise them, give them a family. <laughs> mm. You love them. Then, you know, something happens to them, their family gets killed or they go off to, to go. And then they go kill people and we're with them. Yes, you know, we're with mm. them, kill those people, you know, whatever. But So the power of feature films is just great and drama and dramatic features and so on. So that's what we want to do. But we, of course, we're from the working class. We want to show working class history. Mm. And I think that's slightly different to the way they do it in Hollywood. And certainly Hollywood's not going to fund this film. They don't like to see people struggling and then winning. And that gives, inspires people to do the same. They're really on a one track. You know, it's the boss's world, the free market. And that's why it goes. So, yeah, we're, we really want to make this film. Um, it is going to take a lot, a lot of money, a lot of effort, but we'd really love to tell this story. Mm. Okay. And uh, so just very, very quickly, just to finish up, how do we, uh, what's, what's the game plan? How, how's this thing going to get funded? How can people support it? Yes, so we are asking for donations. We have done a crowdfunding, which was quite successful and helped us produce the short film. Um, we're going to unions, to women's organisations, historical societies, legal bodies, asking them for donations. Um, we have a website, www.jobsforwomenfilmproject.com. We have a Facebook page, just Jobs for Women uh, Film Project. Um, you can get in touch with us. There's a lot of information on the website. There's things you can buy, um, not just DVDs, but T-shirts and badges and various things. So, you know, um, we'd love... Uh, anyone with a lot of money who really <laughs> want to see working-class films, particularly women's films made, that would be great. Um, but that won't come easy for us. We know that. So, you know, we're on a mission uh, to raise that money. So, yeah, get in touch with us. We'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Yep. All right. Well, thanks so much for coming along. Thanks, and, uh, Thank yeah. you. Look forward to Thank seeing you. this thing evolve further. What do you think about the importance of, you know, community media? Well, uh, I think in general that media in the hands of the left is very, very important because we are now fighting against the, uh, the bombs of, of the capitalist uh, bourgeois ideo ideology no? yep. that are submitting our, the conscience of our people. So anything we do in the media is important. But, and I think that radio, uh, community radios, arrives with messages that are much more near the people because they know the problems of the people and they are referring to a concrete a group of people no? and, uh, and they could arrive in a better way, the, the, they could personalize more the message. Right. Welcome back to Green Left Radio. Alright, so now it's time for the activist calendar. Um, find out how you can get active this week in something political. Um, so tonight we have um, Red Cinema, Kurdistan's Woman at War. It will be a short 53-minute um, film about, um, about, uh, you know, about what's happening in Kurdistan and you know, the, the women who are fighting against ISIS. Um, it's going to be happening at the Resistance Centre, level 5, 407 Swanson Street, and the film will start at 6.30 with a meal from 6pm, and it's presented by Green Left Weekly. Um, there'll be a f well, this is actually, uh, I think, a film screen that's happening all for the next several weeks. It's a new yes. film 
um, by Ben Wheat, um, Wheatley, who's actually, I'll plug him, he's actually a pretty good filmmaker. <laughs> um, it's his latest film, High Rise, which is apparently about sort of like a class sort of conflict. Sort of like a, it sounds like a science fiction film here. I'm not going to go read out the whole description, but that's actually screening at the Cinema Nova, and you can probably find out more there. Cinema Nova always has, always has great, great stuff. Yeah. Great activist <laughs> stuff there. Um, I'll pl- also plug the public meeting um, next Monday on August 22nd, who was Ansley, um, telling the story of Frank Ansley, one of the leaders of the movement against conscription in World War One. Ansley. Ansty. Oh. that's it. Okay. My, Speaker. My, my old housemate used to be like, what's the go with that station? I always feel like I've got ants in my pants. When <laughs> I feel really antsy. Uh, so, yeah, its speaker is Peter Love, who we just had on the radio program before, and it's six, It's at 6.30pm at the um, St. Averroes um, Community Centre, which is at 287, 287 Sydney Road. Um, Near the town hall. Yep. On Tuesday, if you are a student at Victoria University, um, there'll be a, a public meeting on the return of Pauline Hanson and the campaign against racism. That will be at 12pm Tuesday, the 23rd of August in Victoria University, Footscray Park Campus, Room C222, and it's hosted by VU Social Alliance. Um, on Wednesday, there'll be uh, a protest against 100,000 um, 100, degree, degrees, like, you know, increasing the price of our degrees <laughs> of <laughs> university <laughs> degrees. It just, sounds, it just sounds like I'm talking about the weather. Yes, so, I think you are. Yeah, that's, that's is, what, that, is that a climate action? Yeah. 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 No, it's against um, against an increase in our higher education. So if you're pa- um, passionate about, you know, against um, you want, you know, free education, university education, you don't want to increase in our course fees, then come to the State Library at 2 p.m. Wednesday, um, on the, st- at the which is at the State Library. On Friday, the 26th of August, there'll be a public forum, Art and Politics, Can Art Stop a War, Save the Planet? And it features a, um, a, an international guest speaker, Carol Wells, who is the director of the Centre for the Study of Political Graphics, California. Um, it'll be at 6.30pm with a meal from 6pm at the Resistance Centre, which is at level 5, 407 Swanson Street. Um, the next Saturday, there'll be looks like there's going to be quite a lot happening on uh, the 27th of August and all these events clash. Um, but there'll be a, but, um, there'll be a seminar on Latin American today at RMIT, 115 Queensbury Street, Carlton, and it's organised by LASNET. They'll be happening from 11am to 5pm. Um, there'll be a rally to close the camps, bring the refugees here at 1pm, 27th of August on Saturday at the State Library. Um, there'll be a public meeting uh, as part of Melbourne Writers um, Festival about local democracy and um, asking questions, you know, how do national policy issues play out locally, focusing on Melbourne's culturally diverse Melbourne western suburbs. Um, Indigenous ca- academic um, Gary Foley and Federal Labor MP Tim Watts will be speaking at this, and this will be at 2.30pm on the Saturday, the 27th of August, at the Footscray Community Arts Centre, 45 Moreland Street, Footscray, and is supported by Victoria University and Footscray's Community Arts Centre. Um, on that, the 27th of August, there'll be a 10th annual John Cummins um, Memorial Fund dinner um, from 6.30pm at the Flemington Racecourse. On Wednesday, the 31st of August, um, there'll be a live stream, um, there'll be a live streaming, well, a live 
Streaming. Yeah, I don't know. What, there's a word. There's another word for it that sounds better than that. Video link. Re- video, yes, a video, video link. link. There'll be a video link of George Monbot. Monbio. Um, Monbio. Uh, yeah, he's a Guardian columnist who will um, provide. Um, who does a lot of um, work on studying, you know, the political effects of climate change. Mm. Um, he'll be appearing via live stream at 7:45 p.m. at the Deakin Edge, Federation Square. This is also part of the Melbourne Writers Film. Writers Film. Um, no, Writers. Writers Festival, not the film festival. I just, just that was a few weeks ago, uh, and that's at the Deakin Edge Federation Square, and it's free as far as you can. You just have to show up, and but it, there possibly will be a huge crowd, so probably get in early. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think Mombio um, supports nuclear power, so I don't know. Hopefully, in the question time, he'll get some uh, curveballs thrown at him. Uh, well, the work I've read by him. On, on my personal opinion, has been quite good. And yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's, he's very good on most points, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I guess that's, I think that'll be it for the activist calendar. I mean, there's all these other events, but I think we can maybe just shift on to maybe, uh, if we got our next interview on. Uh, not available. Yeah, just having a bit of trouble there. It's all right. All right. Well, if we can't, um, if we're unable to get into the interview, we still have, um, plenty of news to go through. Yes, we are. The other thing to mention, too, just before we do get onto that news, if you do want to get a, uh, a physical copy of Green Life Weekly in your hot little hands, you can do so this afternoon at Flinders Street Station from 3 till 6 p.m. No, it's 4 to 6 p.m. Oh, 4 till 6 p.m. And um, also, there's also, in um, if you happen to be in Coburg, um, there will be a store from 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at the Coburg Mall. And there is a selection of um, good quality local cuisine and coffee available <laughs> in the immediate vicinity of that store. So. And, um, you, and you don't have to just get it um, physically. Um, you can also read it online at greenleft.org. You can, and you can get an online subscription. Or, or a paper subscription online if you, you just fill in the form and then we'll send it to your <laughs> home and it will be sent to your home. <laughs> Wonderful. <laughs> One other, uh, going back to the international news, I think one other very important commemoration that has, uh, th- that took place on August 13th the last week was Comrade Fidel turning 90. Uh, the original yeah. edgy left wing hipster. Exactly, exactly. With, yeah, with the beard and everything. The Bush Ranger beard. <laughs> And the, the heavy frame spec. Exactly. Except, uh, uh, except, except, except one that actually, that, um, uh, despite only starting off with about 80 comrades in a leaky boat and, uh, landing on, uh, landing on, mm-hmm. landing on the beaches of, uh, uh, Santiago, Santiago de Cuba still managed to form and, uh, create a mass revolutionary movement that overthrew a U.S.-backed dictator and attempted to create a uh, socialist or anti-imperialist, uh, State in a, uh, on island in the ocean of barbarism and capitalism. It was the United States and uh, all the you know uh, all, all the, the, and, and and its backyard. I guess I mean, one thing I found I find interesting about um, Castro is um, um, because I read the a biography of um, of him and Shay um, like a year ago. But what was interesting is that, um, from my knowledge and from what I read here, is that Fidel Castro actually didn't start off as a socialist or communist. In That's fact, true. Um, he actually start, developed those ideas, you know, through actually participating in 
political struggle with um with Shay. Yes. And in fact it was he was actually I think that's reported that he was a bit suspicious of Shay's communist views at the time <laughs> and what his agenda was. <laughs> Yeah, and some so crazy, you know, some crazy Argentinian uh, doctor rolls up on a motorbike. Yeah, to your uh, to your house. Yeah, you might have, you might be a bit, suspe- you might be a bit suspicious of his his views and of his views, and he wants what's he, what he wants to do. Yeah. But it, but it's been it's been a bit of a tradition. I've noticed this is a bit of a tradition um, among the like the revolutionary leaders in Latin America is that once the, the when they sort of um, and the more they get involved, and the more they, uh, uh, and more sort of once they, um, either, either, you know, once they're brought to power, they actually tend to become more radical. Because the same thing happened to Hugo Chavez, who was actually a Blairite when he was elected as president of Venezuela in 1999. He was actually a fan of Tony Blair. Mm. <laughs> Whoa. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. But as the, as he actually, as the sort of the social movements in Venezuela actually, you know, Sort of pressured, no, not just pressured, but mobilized and pressured him, and you know, and as he uh, sort of implemented more and more policies, he actually became more and more left-wing, more and more radical, and actually started to adopt socialism as part of his agenda, even though he rege- even though he rejected it at first. And yeah, same thing was Fidel. With Fidel, Fidel was a member of the uh, the Orthodox Party, uh, Partido Orthodox, Orthodox, in. Uh, in, in Cuba, which was not a socialist party or even uh, not much of a left-wing party, but was something was more of a sort of an authentic Cuban independence party uh, uh, to, uh, to an extent. But I believe that that uh, it, it really changed when uh, he led the uh, the Montcada barracks attack on July 26th in 1953, sort of as, a, as, as was considered to be the uh, the starting point of the revolution, of the Cuban Revolution, July 26, 1953. Uh, and that's uh, afterwards, uh, a, few, a few months later, is when he gave the, on October, October 16th, is when, when he gave the, the famous uh, speech. Mm-hmm. Condemn me, it, it matters not, history will absolve me. Mm-hmm. Well, it looks like, sometimes I kind of uh, look, uh, look back at, you know, of, at everything that Fidel has been through and at everything that, um, you know, all the leaders that have been inspired by Fidel, you know, Salvador Allende, um, Chavez, Evo Morales, Rafael Correa, you know, the, the, the coach, the coachness, um, you know, the leaders across, other leaders across, like, in, in Mexico, Central, Central America. And, well, he, history didn't just absolve him. It's a, you know, he almost, uh, he, he, had, he played a huge part in writing the, the history books himself. Him and his disciples. Yes, um, maybe we can. Um, we have ten minutes left in our program, but I kind of wanted to bring attention to um, changing the to the another part to the United States to talk yes. about. Um, there's an article here, this, which is um, the subject of the front page about um, the you know the strengthening of the officer oh, the strengthening of the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, and maybe we can sort of, this will be, can be just a sort of general discussion because this article is essentially kind of like a general overview of the movement as it is because pre- on previous programs we've mostly just talked about American politics in terms of the election. Um, but the Black Lives Matter movement, um, has, was started in response to the kind of increased police brutality, um, towards African Americans, especially the unkind of provoked killings of African American teenagers. Um, 
um, in terms in this um, this article is written by Mal- Malik Mayer and it's the it's titled the strengthening of um, the Black Lives Matter. Um, you know, black it, talking about in the situation for in San Francisco because this writer's um, race in um, San Francisco. Um, black people make up six percent of San Francisco's population, but they um, but they suffer forty percent of the city's shootings by cops. Um, the, the the city's statistics on police stops of blacks and violence mirror other cities, especially in the Midwest and the South. Um, there's a in this article it then goes and explores sort of the 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 impact of the free year um, Black Lives Matter movement at the Republican Party. Um, Convention, which nominated Donald Trump, and of course the kind of theme was that only white and blue lives matter. Um, you know, Black Lives Matters leaders um, were called um, demonised and called violent, anti-cop, and evil um, by the Republican Party establishment. Well, that's all. They've got, they've, no, that sounds very mild by the Republican standards. Yeah. <laughs> I thought uh, they were going to use the T word. Yeah, <laughs> but what what's also interesting um, was, of course, um, the Democratic Party convention. It, it adopted an interesting, more softer kind of language, but a more moderate kind of. Uh, you know, they nominated um, Hillary Clinton, um, but her emphasis was on unity. She kind of nominate um, nodded to you know the Black Lives Matter movement, but what she really said w- was all lives matter essentially. Yeah, and, of course, um, and of course. This article um, argues that, you know, All Lives Matter is just a way to, you know, attack the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, it's, it's one of the, it's a kind of continues with the kind of um, traditions of, um, of United States long racist history. You know, back during the Civil Rights Movement, it's an example of, you know, when, you know, African Americans were getting mobilising, you know, in support of civil rights, they were kind of told, you know, to, you know, just wait, moderate yourselves, you know, don't be too radical. Yes. Uh, and essentially, you know, all lives matter is like a silent stack. It's saying, oh, you, um, because, you know, the whole faint thrust of Black Lives Matter is that we... It's, Black it's Lives make, do not matter right now. Yeah, they do not matter right now. And it's saying that, you know, we want... Black lives to actually matter because yeah. they in in the United States they're 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 treated um, unfavorably. You know, African Americans suffer from you know um, blatant discrimination. They get they're um, being they're, uh, yeah young people being killed on the streets by cops. In fact, there's always a shooting incident every week. Like well, uh, as far as I've only lost count of the amount of shooting incidents that happened. Um, and of course, um, but of course. The Black Lives um, Matter movement is grow is continuing to grow, and they're continuing to you know do mass mobilisations. And in fact, you can even see it you know spread into Australia, where we've had mass mm. um, mobilisations in support, in solidarity with the movement, and also um, but also combining with the indigenous struggles um, abroad, in you know, locally. Um, of course, there's. Um, the Black Lives Matter actually have um, movement as a whole has a, pro- a platform, a program which they want to use as the basis of their movement to win demands and to take their struggle forward. Um, it outlines a 10-point um, program, you know, ranging from the rights of black youth, immigrants and the LGBT community and, of course, an end um, to mass surveillance of black communities. Um, the plat- um, platform features five other broad categories, um, support for economic reparations, which is like um, in the context of, you know, slavery, it's essentially 
very similar to demand of mm. paying back the stolen wages. That because absolutely. In fact, in um, the case of America, um, in the prison system, um, African Americans make up the majority of the prison system. And now, if you have to realise. Um, it's owned by private co- corporate companies, and what these private companies do is they actually use the prisoners for slave labour. Essentially, you know, they mm. lock up um, African Americans in prison for like you know very minor offences, like you know maybe possessing a drug, a, a cannabis, more, more cannabis, more. and um, and then they get and then they exploit them, you know, for labour where they don't even have to pay for the corporations. You know, or or if they do pay, it's like seventeen cents an hour or some rubbish like that. Yeah. And, of course, there's um, it's another thing that talk about in this platform is, you know, for economic justice, you know, community co- co- um, control, you know, the ending of black incarceration, which is what I was talking about before, independent, um, and independent polit- black political power and self-determination. And, of course, um, this article states that this detailed platform is the most important um, independent political action program since the National Black Independent Political Party and Black Power Conventions in the 1970s. Um, the platform is an organising tool that takes a movement forward. It can win broad political support for fundamental change. Um, and it also makes a note here that it's um, in the context, because, you know, we've just been talking a lot in, about you, whenever you um, hear discussions about United States politics, it's always about, you know, the elections. Um, this platform does not rely on elections, even though individual activists may run for office. Um, but mass, um, but it's all about, you know, mass public actions, um, you know, continuing, you know, increasing the organisation, building the movement, you know, and putting the power in sort of the people, you know, to make, to make the, create the change and not relying, you know, on politicians to, to um, make it for us. And of course, um, the yeah. article concludes by Black Lives Matter is increasing the confidence of black youth that what they do matters. March, as you said, it is not illegal to kill black people in America are ready to press on that until that is no longer the case. Alrighty. Let's get into the tail end of the uh, Green show. Left Week- Green again. Left Radio. Actually, it's Green Left Radio, isn't it? Or is it Green Left Weekly Radio? Really? This is what we're going to talk about? Yeah, yes, okay. Go down again. I keep using the, uh, both the same. I keep sometimes saying it Green Left Radio and Green Left Weekly Radio. Whatever. Yes. Anyway, over to Dennis. You want, had to say something. Indeed, indeed. Since I will be departing, I will be leaving uh, the show uh, the, the show after um, after this week. Well, f- uh, after, after this week. I thought I'd dedicate this uh, last few minutes to talking a bit about Spain, a bit, uh, a, bi- a bit about Spain and the social change that has been happening there. And that's why so you're moving there. That's one of the reasons. <laughs> uh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Well, it's been. Um, <clears throat> uh, well, it's, oh, oh, it certainly, it certainly has been a, fa- a fantastic being part of Green Left uh, Radio for the for, for for this for this past year. And as, as I mentioned before, I'd be more than happy to come back on the show as a European correspondent for Green Left Radio and 3CR and three, and three, and three uh, from Spain, where I'll, I'll be reporting on the struggle of uh, the left in Podemos and the comrades in the Basque country, Catalonia and other places against the uh, neoliberal and right-wing movements uh, there. Word. Yeah. All right. Well, look forward to uh, hearing from you from the other side of the world. Yeah. Yeah, looking uh, forward to uh, talking with comrades. Sick on. All right. Have a good trip. Oh, actually, you. We can, whenever you write an article in Green Left um, Weekly, we can just sort of talk about it on the show and say, oh, yes, it's from Dennis, formerly from sure. my program. <laughs> exactly. All right. Exactly, Stick yeah. around. Beyond Zero Emissions is on next. <laughs> 